Adventures in time and space told in future tense. All radio is dead. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Look, there comes one of them now. Good evening, my name is Kyle. And I'm Brad. And risen from the coffin we are, the Nosferadudes. In continuation of our Mark of Thorn trilogy, uh, we, we did five, now we're on to Halloween, the Curse of Michael Myers. Right. So, uh, before we get into the movie proper and talking about the background and everything... Uh, just, just in general, Brad, what do you, how do you feel about the way, about six and the way the Mark of Thorn trilogy, uh, kind of ended and wrapped up? What's your general feeling about the film? Uh, that it's a jumbled mess. (laughs) (laughs) Do you still, do you still like it? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That's a very reluctant admission. Well, it, I do like it though. That that's the problem. I don't. I there's there's uh, good things about the movie, and there's some not so good things about the movie. And like five, there's more not so good things about the movie. Um, but you do see, you know, our our first appearance of Paul Rudd. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, and Paul, Paul Stephen Rudd. <laughs> right. As he's introduced, um, as, and, um, you know, you get Loomis again, um, and we'll talk about it, but, um, George P. Wilbur is back as Michael Myers. And I think that that makes a, a bit of a difference. I think it hel- it helps the movie. Um, because once again, like we talk about in all the Halloween movies, do they get Michael right? And in this one, they were able to get him right because they got George P. Wilbur back and the mask looks, uh, really good, uh, in my opinion. Yeah. The Um, the mask, I was just thinking as I was rewatching it yesterday, the mask is the best one out of the, the fran. If you're going chronologically through the franchise, it's the best one since one and two. You know, like four, four and five don't stack up to the mask you get in six. Six looks very, very similar to the original mask. It does. It's it's a scary mask. They 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 did a good job um, with it. You know, the dark eyes and everything, um, and. For whatever reason, it it doesn't. I don't think it looks like William Shatner. Um, I don't know that it looks. It uh, it doesn't look. It's not an exact representation of William Shatner. Um, but um, one of the factoids that uh, I looked up is um, the. Let me find his name. The special effects. Uh, the head of the special effects on this, a guy named John Buchler. He based the mask 
on the Halloween 4 poster art. Which in the Halloween 4 poster art, it's the William Shatner masks. You know, but obviously you're working, you're taking a two-dimensional picture. And then you're trying to translate that to a three-dimensional mask. So he was making Mm. the closest representation he could based on that one image. And then he did the thing that they didn't do for Don Shanks. He actually formed the mask specifically to George Wilbur's face. Mm-hmm. So that in, so the inside of the mask contoured so that it would sit just right on his head and face. They finally learned their lesson. <laughs> yeah, finally at the at the very at the very end of this run of films. <laughs> they, they figured it out. It's funny. I know you're going to go through your production notes, um, but I'm at the part uh, right now where um, Jamie has been rushed. Adult Jamie uh, has been rushed into the Mark of Thorn compound or whatever. And, yeah, the weird uh, underground. She's being re- Right, with all the tunnels and everything. And in one of the tunnels, you know, the nurse helps her escape, right? Um, and and gives her um, uh, her baby and so Jamie can get out of there. Um, and then uh, she's left kind of standing there in the tunnels. And they have these large spikes on the wall <laughs> for no reason. And we talk about Chekhov's gun all the time, right? And, you know, the spikes are there so that Michael can grab this woman by the, you know, the neck and just slam her head onto the spike. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They're there for one reason and one reason only. so silly. Uh, (laughs) So Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers uh, premiered in 1995. It was directed by Joe Chappelle, uh, who uh, before this, previous to this, had directed the the Ben Affleck Morgan was it Morgan Freeman, who was in Phantoms? No, no, it was Donald Sutherland. I'm sorry, I'm thinking about a different Ben Affleck movie. <laughs> I was thinking of the sum of all fears. <laughs> but now Phantoms, um, which is based on the Dean Koontz book, and he also directed. Uh, he worked on the on the show The Wire, but specifically directed like six episodes of it. And then he was a producer and everything on that show. And then the writer was uh, Daniel Farrens, who, other than this film, is probably most known in horror fan circles as the mind behind the two uh, really good documentaries, Never Sleep Again, about the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise great and, documentary and yeah. crystal lake memories about the friday the 13th oh, franchise they seemed very similar oh yeah 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 and how definitely... they were made so that makes sense now but yeah i mean but you get the you get the idea like daniel farrens didn't just write this movie as like you know a, a job necessarily he he loves horror movies he really and he really was into doing a halloween movie writing a halloween movie um, with the cast, like you already mentioned, we get Donald Pleasance back, uh, as Sam Loomis. Um, it's a bittersweet performance because it is his last major performance and his last appearance as Sam Loomis. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, that's a that's a big hit when Donald Pleasance goes. Halloween fans everywhere, you know, cried a tear. <laughs> and as you mentioned, we get Paul Rudd as Tommy Doyle. Now, uh, this was the film that he did. Uh, I I think Clueless came out before this did, but I think he filmed this movie before Clueless. Yes, he did. So technically, this is his first major motion picture, and it says in the credits that introducing, introducing Paul Stephen yeah. Rudd, and yeah. so um, it's his first major motion picture. And man, do we love Paul Rudd! But man, is this definitely his first job? <laughs> but now I will say, okay, that's a criticism. But I will say, mm-hmm. Paul, hey, respect to Anthony Michael Hall, but Paul Rudd is my Tommy Doyle. Absolutely. And Paul Rudd is not the problem. Oh, no, 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 not at all. In this movie. Um, and, I, and I think that I honestly really believe that, I mean, given, yeah, it's Paul Rudd, you probably would have had a bit of a struggle getting him. But I think that it was a major missed opportunity to have Paul Rudd play Tommy Doyle in the David Gordon Green film, you know, that Mm -hmm. in in Halloween uh, kills. Now I will say he would have brought a a different energy to it. I think he would have taken it seriously. I think he would have taken it as seriously as he did this film, but he would have brought a different energy and I can understand maybe why, They wanted somebody who maybe physically was a little more intimidating, which Anthony Michael Hall, in case anybody has not watched anything since The Breakfast Club, uh, man, did that guy, like, given erudite, wonderful, you know, artist, actor, but if you just saw him on the street, you'd think, like, there was a Giga Chad walking your way. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, there was a time being there in his career where he was a, a little, just slightly yoked. <laughs> you right. know, he, he, yep. he, put, he put on some muscle weight after the uh, John Hughes series of films. And, well, remember, uh, uh, remember the movie Johnny Be Good? Uh, yeah, yeah, that was like his, the first time he was like the the big. He, he, he yeah, because he played the quarterback. He played the high school quarterback, and yeah. he was all. All all grown up, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I will say, on, he packed on some weight, packed on some muscle. I will say I do kind of miss uh, John Hughes era Anthony Michael. I, Hall. I do, I do. I miss. <laughs> I think he was funnier. Anthony I think Michael he was Hall. way funnier. He didn't take himself yeah. so seriously. Yep. Um, yep. I think that when he got when he got high in the Breakfast Club, that was the funniest. Oh, and and uh, when he's drunk in uh, Weird Science in the car. Let me tell you yeah. something, Lisa. <laughs> Hanging out with all the, the black guys at the club, and he's he's Russ Griswold. That's right. He's, he's the original. The, he's the original Russ. The original Russ Ch- chugs the beer. That's remember? right. Yep. So then we get um, we get uh, Marianne Hagen as Kara Strode. She's the the female lead of the film. It's her her first film role. So then we get uh, the other kind of major character is uh, Kara Strode's son, Danny Strode, 
played by Devin Gardner. This was only one of two films he ever did. He did one other film, and he was out of the business. Um, as you mentioned, we get George P. Wilbur as The Shape now. He is one of three that played The Shape throughout the movie. Um, he's the primary one. Um, but as we'll get into, there was a little bit of an issue. The production on this was chaotic, um, which it, it's one of the it's one of the movies where it shows in the final product. The final product shows how chaotic the production process was. But yeah, so there were extensive uh, reshoots that were done, and unfortunately, uh, there was also some opinions that. Somehow they thought uh, George Wilbur was too bulky, and so for the reshoots they got a, a slightly smaller guy. And so depending on which version, because there are um, a couple uh, of versions of this. Well, actually, there there's even like three technically, but like one of them nobody ever really sees. There's like the the pr the producer's cut, which is. Uh, more extensive, more about the Mark of Thorn stuff. It goes deeper into that. There's the director's cut, which nobody really has seen. And then there's the theatrical cut, which everybody saw. That's the one where Tommy Doyle hits Michael Myers in the face with a fire extinguisher right. and all this stuff. There's a little more of an action-oriented ending. Mm -hmm. Um we get some side characters. We get uh, Tim Strode, uh, which is like the older, slightly, well, like the middle brother. And then his <sighs> his girlfriend, Beth. Um, Tim Strode is played by Keith Bogart. Beth was played by Mariah O'Brien. Um, Terrible. <laughs> and then we get the, the parents. There's a pretty, there's an extensive little backstory uh, surrounding the the parents. There's some subtext there. But we get uh, John Strode played by Bradford English, um, which he's he has one of those faces, like he was in a lot of stuff, so he has one of those faces where you're like, oh man, I know that guy from somewhere. And um, probably the biggest thing that he ever did was uh, he had a bit part in the 1994 Jack Nicholson movie, Wolf. And he had like an actual scene with Jack Nicholson and... Um, and so, you know, he's one of those guys, you'll, you point him out. Um, and then the mom, Deborah Strode, uh, John and Deborah Strode were named after John Carpenter and Deborah Hill. That's a little fun fact. Um, but Deborah Strode is played by Kim Darby. Now, if anybody knows their shit, Kim Darby was actually Maddie Ross in the original 1969 True Grit. Um, she was also in 1973's Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. Uh, she was in, she was the mom in Better Off Dead, 1985's Better Off Dead. And she, she also was in, uh, Teen Wolf 2 with Jason Bateman. So Kim Darby, right. she's, she's worked everywhere. Um, and then uh, there were a lot of character actors in this. Uh, you get the, the other character of Dr. Wynn slash the man in black who spoiler alert, uh, played by the same guy. <laughs> so if you watch the movie and you see Dr. Wynn, you know who the bad guy is. <laughs> he's, 
He's played by Mitchell Ryan. Mitchell Ryan has been in like everything. Lethal Weapon, High Plains Drifter, episodes yeah. of the A-Team. Um, and then you get one of my personal favorite characters in it who who is only really in a couple of scenes. Uh, Janice Nickram as Mrs. Blankenship. Mrs. Blankenship has what I think is probably the best scene in like the entire movie where she gives like the background of Halloween. <laughs> it's like the spookiest part of the movie. That's just my opinion. And then we get the fill-in for Daniel Harris, J.C. Brandy, as, as you mentioned, older Jamie Lloyd. So this was one of those things. After, after Halloween 5 failed, it was a, it was a, a financial flop. Um, Mustafa Kad, he put this, the whole series on hold to reevaluate. He's like, we, okay, we, we fucked up. We fucked up. We got to stop. We got to figure out what the fuck we did (laughs) and figure out how to fix it. Right. Um, but it wasn't one of those things where, yes, this, this came out in 1995. Um, so, you know, you're talking, what was that like six years, five, six years later? And mm-hmm. they six actually, even though he put everything on hold, he wanted to bring six out much earlier. Um, but it was in what's classically called development hell. Um, they could not get mm-hmm. the thing off the ground. Um, I mean, right off the bat, he wanted to, he, they wanted to bring back Daniel Harris, they wanted to bring back Don Shanks. And possibly, they weren't sure about Donald Pleasance because coming out of the end of five, he was already having some health issues. He was getting up there in years. They weren't sure he was going to... They they let. That's why in five, they kind of leave it open-ended whether he's... You don't know specifically that he's alive or dead. You just kind of see him collapse. Right. And uh, then they even thought about... Because Wendy Kaplan... You see her, that's another one where they kind of hedge their bet. They left, you see her getting carted off on a stretcher, but you don't, like, she could be dead, and like with the eyes open and the arm hanging, or she could be alive. It's never confirmed if Tina dies or not. Um, right. So we almost had more Tina. That was, that was part of the initial discussions. And so they went through a bunch of stuff. They, uh, there was a lot of legal shit that happened in the midst of all of this. Um, because Miramax, under the Dimension Films umbrella, they, there was, a, there was a, a battle over the rights to the franchise. Miramax wanted to buy the rights. You know, that's why when we get to H2O, it's a, specifically you see the Miramax logo at the beginning of the film. It's a Miramax film. It's, you know, wine, the Weinsteins are all involved. But John Carpenter was working with New Line Cinema. He wanted to try and outbid Miramax. He was trying, John Carpenter was trying to get the rights back, um, which is understandable. I mean, he's watching... Even though he claims to not care, it's one of these things where he claims to like, oh, I just, you know, I made the movie and then I moved on to other stuff and I don't give a shit and, you know, whatever else. But meanwhile, he's like writing on a lot of them. He's 
you know, doing producing. Every time he says, I don't want anything to do with it, he always has something to say. <laughs> so I think he got the sense, like, they're killing my baby here. <laughs> they're destroying right. this thing. So he wanted to do it. Um, he tried right. to outbid him, but it might have been right. a good thing that he didn't win because apparently uh, the word is his his treatment would have been Halloween in space. He would have taken it to like a space station or something. Um, many years in the future, I guess, <laughs> you know, um, which is kind of funny because that's where he wanted to take it. And then uh, not very long after that, Jason X came out. <laughs> Right. <laughs> um, so they think maybe, you know, he might have inspired that with some of his pitches. Uh, right. So then, so 1993, the Weinsteins have it. Bob Weinstein um, hires a couple of guys, Gary Flater and Phil Rosenberg, to work on it. Their script was titled Halloween 666, The Origin. And Mustafa Kad threw that script across the room. <laughs> Mustafa Kad was like, this is shit. And he just tossed it. Um, they actually approached, because the Weinsteins, you know, they, they were all up Quentin Tarantino's ass at that time. So they approached Quentin Tarantino to write and direct Halloween 6. He was willing to write it. But he didn't want to direct it. He wanted nothing to do with directing it. But he was willing to write a script for it. His script, it's a its a bit of an apocryphal story because he never actually wrote it. He never wrote the script. He didn't even really have like a formal treatment for it. But his idea that he told people about at the time would have been to have Michael Myers and the Man in Black on a road trip down Route 66 going on a murder spree. <laughs> Which people say is funny because he then wrote Natural Born Killers not very long after right. after that. Yep. Um, by 1994, so now, you know, like, so that's 93. They're trying to get this thing going. By 94, uh, there's more attempts at treatments, but no script is getting really worked out. Um, some of the scripts had Michael turn out to be Loomis's son. Um one had Michael's mother was trapped as a sex slave by the man in black, and that's how the man in black controlled him. Um, so they were literally like, they're doing all this, and they already have like a release date in mind. Uh, they're, they have like location scouting done. They're like setting a shooting schedule, but no script yet. <laughs> they're doing all this shit, all this work. But no script yet. Not even a story. They hadn't even agreed on a story yet. Uh, and then Akkad, Mustafa Akkad, and Bob Weinstein, or the Weinsteins, started having tensions. And they, between the two of them, they just couldn't keep a writer or director. They were like getting people to kind of hop in, and then things weren't working out because everybody's arguing. So then in June 1994, Daniel Ferens is brought in to fix the script problems. And he, Daniel Farrens, was like all about writing this movie. He had, he actually prepared a Bible for his treatment of the story. It had family trees. 
It had the Mark of Thorn lore, like all completely. He had like a history of the Mark of Thorn. Um, he was using, going back to like all the novelizations of the films that, that were using like from the very first novelization, because this was all stuff that John Carpenter had actually kind of just spitballed that didn't make it into the original film. But the guy who wrote the novelization was like, Oh, I love that. Yeah. I'm going to put that all in, you know? And so Daniel Farrens is going back to all of that stuff. And, um, yeah, they had, they had the working idea, like as early as 1990, you know, they were working on some of these things, but it, you know, it just all got held up. So finally Daniel Farrens gets to do, you know, what they want to do. And, uh, but yeah, they had the Mark of Thorn going, they had the Sam Hain stuff, Druidism and, uh, Daniel Farron's wanted to work in Michael's father hearing voices. You know, that was from the original novel. So it was like this working in the whole family genetics thing. Um, in the original, that original script, Jamie was in most of the film and was only killed in the final act. So we missed out on that. Um, that also kind of uh, had the, uh, if you remember when we talked about H2O, there was an initial thing about like the town being part of a conspiracy. That was going to be like what they were thinking about for seven, but then H2O happened. And that was, they had that idea, they were maybe going to put it in six. You know, the, that mm-hmm. was already an idea that they had of the town being part of this big conspiracy. Um, but Farron's wrote it- 10. Oh, go ahead. Is the is the the um, fact that Jamie didn't last in the movie that she didn't make it that far because they couldn't get Daniel Daniel Harris to uh, Daniel Harris? Uh, well, no, you know what? Uh, it couldn't have been because uh, in what I read, Daniel Harris part of that negotiation over the money was because of the short time that she would be actually filming. So I oh, think Oh, so they planned on killing her. Bef- yeah, before Daniel Harris was was signed on, they had already scrapped the Jamie lives till the end storyline. Oh, wow. Okay. Um and that was actually and and it's one of these weird things. Uh, I had to kind of read between the lines, but we know because of the writer's strike and the proposed actor's strike that a lot of this stuff comes down to unions and agreements mm-hmm. and nobody wants to piss on anybody else's territory. And so apparently we know that like casting directors have their own union, right? And because of that, casting directors actually have quite a bit of authority and so the casting director and the, and the agency handling the casting, they approached Daniel Harris. They offered her $1,000 for one week of filming. And she was like, no. She, she actually, Daniel Harris um, was 17 at the time. She wanted to do the film. But there was something about she would have needed to get emancipated to be able to just sign on to do the film herself. Um, 
It's one of those weird, you know, child actors and their parents, and there's all this weird legal stuff that happens. Uh, so she went through with it and got emancipated. She was like planning, like, yeah, I'm going to do this movie. And she got emancipated. Well, you have to like pay. You have to pay fees and stuff, like court fees and things to get emancipated. Well, those are mm-hmm. over $1,000 mm-hmm. when it's all said and done. So they were offering her less than what she paid to get emancipated to then be to in the movie, the movie. To do the movie. Right. And she's like, no. She's like, I got to at least make more than what I already spent. Right. You know? And apparently the casting agency was like, no, fine, fuck it. We'll go with somebody else. <laughs> so that wasn't I even guess. that wasn't even uh, Mustafa Kod's decision. That wasn't the director Joe Chappelle's decision. That was the casting agent's decision. The cast the the you know, it's like it's weird. And that and you know, and it it's funny because Mustafa Kod waited uh six years. You know, we're talking about this now, that all the stuff that they're going through um, and to end up where they ended up, you know. It's, yeah, all that it's like time. You might, as well have rushed, you might as well have rushed the production, you know, and, and, and done it the same way you did five because it didn't turn out any better. And, it, and it's hilarious because you can't tell me with all that time that there wouldn't have been room for if if Mustafa Kod really wanted her if Joseph you know if these if the people working on the movie really want somebody there's agreements there's deals you can work out you yeah. know and again you're making you're making decisions that um get you further and further away from what made Halloween 4 so successful right they did it in 5 you know we talked about how they brought back the cast only to not use them and then in six, you have the opportunity to bring back um, the main, the, the person who's been the main character, the main actress through, you know, these these previous two movies and and keep the continuity there. And you blow that. And and again, one of made these major decisions that just lead to the, the downfall of, of the movie. No, you're absolutely you're absolutely correct. But yeah, so there were 10 drafts between June and October of 94. It went through like 10 major drafts of, of this script. Um, but Farron's uh, wanted the, the story to focus more on Tommy Doyle as a traumatized survivor who becomes the natural successor to Dr. Loomis. Um, Farron specifically talks about uh, the idea of Loomis and then Tommy Doyle being you know, like the Van Helsing type character, like, um, they, they use that verbiage. Um, Farron's viewed Michael as a sexual, like Daniel Farron's wanted to take it to a more grounded look at a psychopath. Um, so, so Farron's was like, Oh, there, Michael Myers is a sexual deviant. With the way he stalks young women, it's due to rep- repressed sexuality. He was attracted to his sister, got fixated on her, murdered her, and then wants to recreate that sadosexual release. So he fixates on Lori because Lori excites him sexually. So he, th- so he thought that making Lori Michael's sister was like a huge mistake, that they never should have done that. Um. And then they wanted to take it further to a super the supernatural place with the cult angle, um, 
but Daniel Ferens thinks that like yes, they wanted to go supernatural, but Daniel Ferens is like they took it too far. Like when it got to Joe Chappelle and the producers and stuff, they went way over the top with it, and that's not really what I wanted to do. Um, they actually here's a, a fun another fun fact because um, I did skip somebody. There's actually the character of DJ Barry Sims who ends up being played by uh, an actor by the name of Leo Getter. They actually approached Howard Stern to play I that was just going to say, my, my note was Stern wannabe. Right, and that's because it, he was written, that character was written with Howard Stern originally in, in mind. mind. Mm-hmm. Um, they approached Howard Stern, but Howard Stern was already working on private parts. Private they, parts. They were in the early developing, be, starting to begin. Oh. They were going to start shooting private parts, and so he just turned them down flat. So many swings and misses. <laughs> so many swings and misses. <laughs> filming finally gets going. Film, filming finally starts in the fall of 1994 in Salt Lake City. Um, Say that again. <laughs> what? What? The fall of 1994? Right. So, for is this the first time in a Halloween movie that we actually see real leaves falling from the trees right it's really fall it's actually the fall and and i think that was i mean given uh there was a lot of false starts getting this thing going um but they did this with the idea that it would i think it would be more authentic um but the probably the biggest issue the biggest problem going into the production of this movie is the producer, uh, one of the producers on the film was Paul Freeman. He was like the on-site producer. Um, and then the director, Joe Chappelle, they got there. So they, ha- they have this script written by Daniel Farrens. Yes, it went through some, some rewrites. Um, but by the, they got to the end of the sh- with the shooting script that it was about as close as Daniel Farrens, you know, uh, got to getting what, what they wanted, you know, which was, um, you know, this very in-depth, very fan-based, you know, based in the history of the franchise and, and everything, this this story. Um, but for whatever reason, I guess Joe Chappelle and Paul Freeman um, didn't like that script. <laughs> it was the one they were, they were given. Because um, Joe Chappelle had, he was a, a writer also, and he had like turned in some ideas for the film that were turned down in favor of, the other script. So basically it was like they got on set and Paul Freeman and Joe Chappelle were like, okay, we're going to do whatever we want now anyway. So they started like massively rewriting like whole sequences and everything. They were deleting scenes. They were just throwing scenes out. They were rewriting. Um, Chappelle even was going so far. He was sending like crew members home and shooting second unit stuff himself like he wanted like complete control of the whole production and it ended up getting so bad um, because this is stuff that like as a director, like these are all no-nos, you know, you don't like, it's one thing to like change stuff on the day, but you're supposed to work with the writer. You're supposed to like, there's steps that are supposed to be taken to craft the film. And he was just, making it the Joe Chappelle show, apparently from, from what I, I gathered. And so Mir- 
Miramax ended up stepping in and they took over the production. They took it away from him basically and said, you know, now you're just going to be here to set up shots and sit behind a camera. And um, so they, they forced him to reshoot many of his these reworked sequences that he had come up with. They said, no, go back, film it the way it was written. We liked it the way it was. We don't want any of this other shit that you did. Um, I wonder how much of that there is. Yeah, is I'm not enough to make almost a whole other movie. It very possibly, very possibly, you know, when, it, when you're making changes that extensive, I'm sure there's a lot of stuff that didn't see the light of day that you know would have made a completely different story out of it. Um, yeah. Malik Akkad, uh, Mustafa's son, stated that the the film basically suffers from too many cooks. Um, too many hands in the pot between the between producers, between Miramax, between Joe Chappelle, you know. So it was like just a recipe for for disaster. Early 1995, they finally screen test the film, and the audience reacted badly to the ending that they had at that time. It involved a Celtic ritual, and the mark of Thorn being passed to Loomis. Um, which right. anybody that knows will know that that ended up in the producer's cut. Right, it did. But that audiences didn't like it, uh, so they ended up going back and they committed to like a full reshoot of the ending. Problem, though, by the time they were doing this, this is early 1995, in February of 95, Donald Pleasance had already died. So they were not able to use him for any of the reshot material which makes the final film even more choppier. Right. Um, for those reshoots, uh, Dimension cut out the Akkads. They had Farron's and Chappelle both write endings. Dimension films didn't like either of them. So they brought in some other guy named Rand, Ra Rand Ravitch, uh, who was just coming off of rewriting Hellraiser Bloodline, which, for any fans out there who've watched Hellraiser Bloodline, holy shit. <laughs> right. What were you thinking? Uh, so, uh, but Ravitch actually had a final scene of Tommy Doyle, like, capturing and, like, chaining up Michael Myers. Like, he, him being, like, hoisted uh, in, in chains. Um, but that actually didn't get shot. They were fully intending for that to be the ending of the film of Tommy Doyle capturing Michael Myers. But the crew, they took so damn long to do these reshoots, they ran out of time and money. And so for the theatrical release, all you get is a final shot of the mask laying on the on the floor. That's it. <laughs> That was right. that was their answer. So and uh, it almost sounds like some gaffer, some gaffer stand there going, uh, "Why don't you lay his mask on the floor and just take like a last shot of it?" And you know, that and <laughs> and end it. Yeah, and that's it. And that's it, man. That oh, it gives me chills. <laughs> Fade to black. <laughs> uh. Then, not only that, so there's all that fucking bullshit, and then they mm. did significant editing in post-production in an attempt to, air quotes, fix the film, 
um, two cuts were done. Uh, there was the there was a legal battle over which cut was going to get released to theaters. Dimensions cut one. That's the one that cuts out all the ritual stuff, any any of that stuff, and and leaves you with a mask laying on the floor. Mm-hmm. Um, they actually this is the funniest part to me. They chose the curse of Michael Myers as the secondary title of the film all because Daniel Farren's jokingly suggested it to Mustafa Akkad because of all the pr- trouble they had with the production. Like, the movie was cursed. So, right. just as a joke, Daniel Farren's was like, why don't we call it The Curse of Michael Myers? And Mustafa, was, uh, Mustafa Akkad was like, I love it! <laughs> <laughs> the film finally got released on September 29th, 1995, it brought in uh, seven million, seven point three million dollars. Came in second in the movie theater to Seven. That was the same time that Seven was released. Um, so I mean, understandable. I mean, Seven, Seven is kind of amazing. Kind of. Yeah, it grossed only fifteen point one million on a five million dollar budget. So it was, if you remember it more successful than five mm-hmm. um which i would hazard to say it's a more in, even though it's we it's whacked out and there's all kinds of crazy shit i would hazard to say it's more enjoyable than five it's why a, it what do you mean why <laughs> why it's more enjoyable what's than, the main thing well the main thing is michael's better thank you michael's better That's it. Um, that's wh- it it carry it carry it's the only thing that well besides paul rudd i think well paul paul rudd brings something an odd magic it's a weird magic <laughs> um there there's the cast is is more i want to say solid because they it wasn't like just a a bunch of stupid vapid teenagers so the cast is more is more substantial yeah. is a is a uh, an adult, you know, she's a mom. So you you have that, you have an adult, Paul Rudd, and then Loomis. Those are the three kind of adults that are, you know, going through all this. So, um, and then you have the throwaway characters of the, the, the brother and, and the yeah. girlfriend and everything. Yeah. So. But, and you get, and you, your big complaint about five as well was Loomis, that you didn't like the way Loomis was portrayed in five and much in, better in six, we get a more, toned down more subtle Loomis than right. we than we did in five. He's kind of back to where he was in four. Um they they did Well he's a, almost he's, he's almost he's back a to lot more, the way he was in the beginning. Well he's a lot more um he's older now, obviously. So this is I mean, this is the end of we're watching the end of Donald Pleasance's life right here. And um yeah, on screen. So he he's at his he's at the end. So he's a lot more fragile in yeah. the movie. Yeah, he it's is. It's really Paul Paul Rudd is more the one that takes over the you know that the energy um, that that Doctor Loomis brought to the other movies. Um, yeah, yeah. By he... this time, he didn't really have that energy anymore, and he was just in it to kind of wrap up maybe wrap up his story even he died but that was probably going to be his last one no matter what 
So maybe to wrap up his story, but it's really Paul Rudd that takes over that 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 role um, and that energy yeah. uh, from from Doctor Loomis. Yeah, he he pushes the tension, he pushes the confrontations and the chases and and all yeah. that kind of thing. And I think, to be honest, I think um, with with the death of Donald Pleasance, I think that solidified the fact that you know when they go in to do these reshoots, Loomis has to die. You know, at that at that point, they're like, you know, we we have to end this in some way. You know, we can't keep this going. Whereas the producers cut, it's like all of a sudden the mark of Thorn passes from Doctor Wynn to him. So now it's supposed to be like Loomis who's in charge of somehow controlling Michael Myers or some weird involved thing. And, right. And um obviously that wasn't going to work. You know, you're going to get to seven and you're going to have to figure some other shit out. <laughs> you know, right, right, it's, right. it's just an unfortunate situation. Um, because in the producer's cut, the one thing that I like about it is for his last shot of the film, Donald Pleasance actually does like the classic Donald Pleasance, Dr. Loomis, like scream. Right. And, and, you know that's just nice. That's nice to see at the end of that the film, that version of the film. You know, right. but that's about that's about as far as that goes. Right. <laughs> and um, the one the one major note, just coming to the end of the production stuff, the one kind of major thing that I thought of was this is at this time period there were these films coming out that were trying to continue the slasher film trying to keep these franchises going. And this is just another one from this time period where they're fumbling around to try and somehow reignite this particular slasher franchise, and they do it by going supernatural, which is like where so many of them you know, would try to go. There was a successful... Um retelling or, or remake or whatever you want to call it of a horror franchise just the year before um new nightmare came out just before this movie right right and that's with a fresh with a fresh telling of the story um wes craven got in back involved in it so you know if if john carpenter maybe had gotten back involved in this uh we would have had that kind of fresh you know, take on the story, but, um, but yeah, they, I mean, they managed to do it with the nightmare on Elm street. Um, but it starts in the, it starts, you know, in the production decisions, you know, right. and, and they, they, for, you know, new nightmare, they brought back Robert England. They brought back Heather Langkamp. They brought back Wes Craven. They brought back everything that worked and use them the way they should be used and they made good decisions new line made those those decisions and, and that's, that's the why funny that part was, is that new that, line wanted to get this franchise as well right exactly so had new line gotten a hold of this franchise maybe it would have been a different story and i i would have i would hazard to think that bob shea probably could have talked john carpenter out of going to space <laughs> I think Bob Shea probably would have been like, no, nah, that's bullshit, John. Like, no. Right, right. Put it back sure. in Illinois. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
I have one request, like no space, please. Yeah, no space, yeah. and uh, Lynn Lynn gets to be in the movie somewhere. Right. <laughs> oh, jeez. Because <laughs> Lynn, of Shale. course, she has to be. A, she always has to be. A, yes, she has yeah. to be in the movie. She's, she's um, yeah, she's Bob Shay's version of like Sherry Moon Zombie. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so I mean that's that's the end of all the. I know that was a lot of production. Uh, that was backstory. a lot of production stuff. Yeah, you're right. We do have to do two episodes just to get through all the production stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and it's one of those things where I think that, you know, I thought about cutting some of that stuff out, but I'm like, with this movie, you almost have to understand that stuff. Well, that's what I was just gonna, I was I was just going to make that point too. Yeah, uh, because this movie is is a mess because of the production decisions. You have to go through all of that to understand why it's such a dumpster fire of a movie. But like we talked about, we still watch it. We still watch it all the time. Oh yeah, yeah. So do do you remember that we tried to get into this movie when we were fifteen? Because I it was before our sixteenth birthday. That the movie came out, I think. Oh, we got like rejected. <laughs> oh no, we were sixteen, but it didn't matter because it was we would have had to been seventeen. No, your mom drove us to the theater, and she tried to like get us in, and they rejected us because she didn't want to stay for the movie. <laughs> yeah, she, she wouldn't. Was, she was going to leave. Yeah, and uh, so we couldn't we couldn't see it, and we were so bummed. <laughs> which is so stupid because even though like this is bloodier than than five and in, in some instances like you see more blood i should say in this um there's nothing in this that you know was well we, but we were so excited because it would have been the first halloween movie we would have seen in the, in theater. the theater yeah so the, the the next the first one we ended up actually seeing in the theater was h2o because that's when we were old enough to to get in yeah so what would you say is is what would you identify <laughs> as the biggest what? problem in the movie uh the biggest problem in the movie um i the 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 whole mark of thorn thing is you know i i know it's <laughs> it's the mark of thorn trilogy it's our favorite trilogy, but the Mark of Thorn aspect of the Mark of Thorn trilogy is my least favorite thing about the Mark of Thorn trilogy. Yeah, it's so, so that it's, makes sense. It's so weird because, um, because I like the characters. Uh, yes, yes, and that, and and two out of and two out of the three movies they got Michael Wright because you had George P. Wilbur, so. <clears throat> those things really worked and there's things again about this movie that worked that make me want to watch it over and over and over again so you know there there is that um, yeah i mean between between the the female lead um uh, she's the, good yeah yeah the the cara cara strode character the funniest part is let me i have to remind myself again of the the actress's name Mar did you say marianne hagen marianne hagen yeah marianne hagen the funniest part of that is um, she she's one of the best characters of the movie. You mm -hmm. you find yourself uh, attracted to her, but not like 
Not it's not like in other horror. It's not in other horror movies. It's not like in a like you know some of the horror movies. It's like just big boobied blondes. You know at like you know sorority house massacre type shit. You know it's like, but she's she's like you find yourself attracted to her to her character. She's really and that was one of the arguments they had because apparently the producers didn't want her. Mm. Um, but I think this was a case where I think like Joe Chappelle and like, you know, the people working, actually working on the movie, you know, not the guys just sitting in a studio office. Um, they wanted her because they're like, she's got girl next door quality. She's mm-hmm. still beautiful. Like apparently one studio executive was like her chin's too pointy. Like what the fuck? It's ridiculous. Give me yeah. a fucking break. Um, but yeah, she's uh, you know she's great. But I'll tell you, I I'll tell you why why, and I think it was a cool decision to have like a mom, you know, it's it's different, you know, yeah. so so to have that kind of like now it's gone from babysitters to like now it's a mom, yeah. And one of the most effective scenes in the movie uh, comes when, uh, uh, what's Kara is that her uh, character yeah so Kara has now kind of started talking to Tommy right they're at the house uh, Tommy's house and she sees she's looking across the street while kind of Paul Rudd is explaining all this stuff and she's looking in the camera pointed across at her house yeah and sees the her brother and well her brother's girlfriend get killed by Michael she knows Michael's in the house and then she witnesses the murder and then she watches uh she looks down and she sees Danny going across to the house he's drawn to the house yeah cuz there's like that so weird now, connection thing happening yeah so she has to go into the house and now she's not worried that Michael could be in the house she knows Michael's in the house and she, she has to go in anyway there, she has to she go she has to go in because it's her son Right. Really, you know, that really strong stuff. So that, that you know, that kind of builds uh, tension finally. Like you get, you know, that, that kind of return of that, that, that really good tension that, that defines the, the franchise. Um, and that was that casting decision. So, you know, because she's a mom, right, it makes that situation so much scarier. Right, right. You know, and I, and I think there were, there were, there were a lot of really good choices made in the film. I mean, you know, Paul Rudd is is completely over the top uh, in his depiction of Tommy Doyle, but in a weird, ridiculous way, it works because the whole idea is is Tommy Doyle has like massive, like they don't show it in like panic attacks or things like that, but PTSD. Just, yeah. He's got major PTSD. It's just in the in in the way he talks to people and the way he deals with the situations at hand. Like, you know, she gets initially creeped out because he's like staring at her house and you know got the camera at the window and all that kind of stuff. And but yet for Tommy, like. No, that's nothing sexual. Like he would have never thought that that was a sexual thing. He's like, it's I'm Michael's li- house. I'm literally watching Michael's house because I'm watching for him to come back. Right. Exactly. 
that's and that's all it is to him you know it's and it's, yep. it's all based out of his his trauma and that actually if you really get into it like there's a lot of deep character shit in this movie that that i mm. think if you if you just watched it as just oh we're going to watch a halloween movie tonight you mm-hmm. you wouldn't catch it um part of that is tommy doyle wanting to protect these kids mm-hmm. because that's the whole idea is laurie strode protected him right so he's not going to let anything happen to these kids i and i i like that they they made tommy doyle you know the you know that kind of character now he's all grown up and now he's kind of taking over for loomis i it was a good that i it was a good decision another good decision so yeah and like i said this the part that's playing right now is my favorite part it's where mrs blankenship is telling danny about the history of halloween and they've got paul rudd doing the slow walk through the carnival like he's literally like looking he he's literally hunting in that scene he's trying to find michael myers you know he's right and um and just the way that actress that plays Mrs. Blankenship, the way she tells the story is mm-hmm. so cool. It has a similar effect to what we talked about with the opening of Halloween 4 that gives you that eerie, spooky Halloween vibe. It, mm-hmm. it, it sets a tone and environment. Now... Unfortunately, this comes like halfway through the film. You right. know, if they could have had this tone all the way through, you know, it, it would have been a lot more effective, you know. And then the way she ends it where she's like the little boy, you know, that lived in that house. He yeah. heard the voice, too. The little Myers yeah, boy. She... You know, she's like, I babysat him that night. She babysat him. Yep. She babysat him that night. Is this whole thing a little on Mrs. Blankenship? Well, and as you find out later in the film, uh, it, well, at least I. I oh, for- that's right. She's part of the. Th- she's th- part of it. <laughs> that's right. She she's part of it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's a, it's that that sequence is a great sequence. I I wish they could have kept that that same energy. Um, because then like right after that, they introduce the Howard Stern ripoff character and, and, and the, it, it goes into a bit of a trough again, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. And you have the, you have the, uh, I had a note down the, the weird caller that like is, is in love with Michael, you know, yeah. <laughs> she's like sexually attracted to Michael and it's like, okay, this is weird. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, so. We we started off with me asking you what what you thought the biggest problem was, and I mean, oh. I, I I agree with you. I think that the funny part is, and and you can't tell you can't tell what is Joe Chappelle, what is Daniel Farrens, what is Miramax. Like mm-hmm. you, I wish that they it was clearer, because I think whoever was coming up with the backstory of like uh parental abuse the John Strode smacking Kara around 
and all the weird family backstory that never gets elucidated, which is okay, but it, it, it it's like this odd dynamic in the family. Like she, she left home, she had a baby, now she's back home, he's getting drunk all the time. I, and I think that was to make uh, maybe Kara more sympathetic. sympathetic yeah, true. True, but it's like there's there's that whole thing. There's the Tommy Doyle, the you know traumatized becoming this Van Helsing type, taking over for Luna. There's that whole thing. There are these these pockets of story that, if the whole thing had been those kind of crossing over and and interconnecting and overlapping storylines that then had the overarching um, event, the trauma of Michael Myers coming back and, and you know killing again, it would have made for like this really kind of compelling, really deep movie. And I wish mm. I kind of knew whose movie that was. Because right. if that was Joe Chappelle's, then Joe Chappelle was fucking right and you should have let him do whatever the fuck he wanted, right? <laughs> right yeah yeah (laughs) you know but i wish i knew whose it was you know if if it's daniel farron's then you never should have thrown his script out you never should have changed the word you know it's like whoever was doing that had it right um but then you get all this like other you know frou-frou crap thrown (laughs) that makes it incomprehensible um but yeah so i i think i think that for me like the Mark of Thorn storyline, it, it is a huge problem, but it's a huge problem simply born out of, you know, overall, I think you had, you had a lot of people that gave a shit. They, they wanted the movie to succeed. They wanted it to be great. But the problem was they all had their own ideas of how to do that. And they didn't agree with each other and they didn't want to listen to each other and they didn't want to find... And, and, and then... You got the other element, which is they're all under pressure to put this fucking thing out. They mm-hmm. feel like it's taking too long. So they're all listening to a ticking clock, just trying to get this into a theater. And right. that doesn't help anybody. No. 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 Now, one thing that I do want to bring up, uh, number one, uh, it's great they're back to a more realistic Myers house. Because that's where the Strodes are living. Yeah, it just looks like it got renovated. Yeah, yeah, they're they're working on it. They're trying to improve same it. style of house, but they just changed the the you know the porch a little bit. They updated you know the siding and everything. They painted, you know, they made some improvements. Yeah, yeah, and and they they kind of write it up really well. Like as far as it's like. You know, the house that Strode Realty couldn't sell, so now mm-hmm. they're moving in. But as I was watching this, it's funny when, when you watch movies. I haven't watched this one in a little while. When you watch movies, as you get older and you get different perspectives on things, you start to notice different things, you start to see different things. And this goes even more into the 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 depth of the film that could have been. Uh mm-hmm. There's the whole thing. Okay, they've moved into this house. Uh, he's the father, John Strode. He's drinking a lot. He's drinking at work. He's always sh- seems stressed and pissed off. 
and he's you know yelling at everybody and is abusive to everybody. The mom is kind of put down. He smacks Kara, gives her a nosebleed right in front of her kid. The kid, mm-hmm. the kid, like puts a knife to his gut, like "Don't hurt my yep. mom." Yep. Um, the brother tries to defend her, but he's completely ineffective because he's still afraid of the dad too. And you have this whole dynamic going on. And I thought I started thinking about it, and thinking about it, and thinking about it, and I'm like, so he's John Strode. He is Laurie Strode's uncle. He's he's her dad's brother. Yes. So they had Strode Realty together. It was it was a, a brother right. operation, a family business. And Laurie's father is deceased. And so now John Strode is trying to run Strode Realty on his own. Mm-hmm. So he's at work, he's answering the phone like snippy, he's drinking and everything. They do have a weird moment, like he he does it, he hits his daughter in the beginning, but he keeps a picture of her in his desk. So there's like like there's all this weird backstory that you never get. Like, what is going on there? You know? Right. He loves her, but he's smacking her around. And so my take on it, I'm watching this with Jenny and I'm like, the business is failing. Mm-hmm. So they didn't they didn't just move into the Myers house. Oh, just it, you know, it's the house we couldn't sell. That's no, the, he had to. He has to. That's the only yeah. place they have left to live. Because yeah. I'm assuming he either lost or had to sell their house to keep afloat. Right. And so they have this other house on the books. So he moves in. It's yeah. th- this is the end of the line for John Strode. Right. You know, one right. and that and that's why uh you know uh Loomis visits the mother, Deborah, gets her all freaked out cuz he's like Michael Myers is back, you're living in his house, your guys are in danger. So she calls him up, she's like I'm taking the kids and leaving. Yeah. And he of course thinks like that the Myers thing, Michael Myers, what 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 and it's like it's in some kind of weird, stupid thing or just an excuse or whatever. So he comes home and he comes home and he's kind of like he's drunk, but he's also not like yelling. I think he comes home like thinking after the phone conversation that they had and he's been thinking about his daughter all day. And he seems like he walks in initially like he's going to be kind of maybe nice. And then as he's like looking around, there's nobody there. He doesn't know his wife's already dead. He doesn't know that, you know, that uh, his, you know, his daughter's on the run from Michael Myers. He comes in and there's nobody there. And he literally thinks like, oh, she finally left. You know, and he says it out loud, like she finally did it. She finally left. And so before John Strode gets killed in the basement by Michael Myers, John Strode basically thinks his fucking life is over. Like my business mm-hmm. is failing, my family's left me. <laughs> like he's at the end of his fucking rope, you know. Right. Michael Myers did him a favor. Yeah, Michael Myers kind of put him out of his misery. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's such a it's a deep little mini story that you don't realize until you're watching it and you're a little older and you understand some of this stuff. This almost could have been turned into a series 
so that you could like draw that story kind of out a little bit to flesh out all these characters to go into like tommy's trauma to go into the strode family that legacy and what their life is like all that kind of stuff yeah there's a lot because because jamie so laurie had jamie and i guess i don't know when when laurie's parents died or passed away but you don't really ever hear much about him until this movie right well and that's the other weird part so i thought about all that shit with john strode and the strode family and then i thought to myself so that means that when laurie died there was family for jamie to go jamie but they rejected her well did they reject her or did Lori know that Uncle John wasn't so great? And so she like specifically wanted her to be adopted by somebody. Mm. Did she like put it in her will that Jamie was not to go live with John and Deborah Strode? Well, not just John and Deborah, but what I mean is like Lori's parents. So like, I think they're supposed to be they dead. Bo- they're, they're both dead. I think they're supposed to be dead already. Because I think they that, dead. I think they, they die in a when... car accident. They died in a car accident. Is the official backstory. Not another car accident. I believe so. L- I... But but Lori died in a car accident. Well, yeah, and that's... we talked about this before that people are having they they, <laughs> they just can't drive in Illinois. Everybody's dying in a car accident. If they don't die at the hand of Michael Myers, they die in a car accident. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it, it, it adds a weird dynamic that the fact that Jamie specifically didn't go to live with, you know, Uncle you know, John and Aunt Deborah. Heart disease is usually the number one killer of adults in <laughs> most states or <laughs> cancer or something like that. But in Illinois, it's Michael Myers and car accidents. That's right. That's the, the, the two big Heart disease is number three. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and then uh, you get... Uh, there's a there's another layer to it and i don't i can't remember if the flashback was in the theatrical cut or not because this is like the only one i've seen i think the last two times i've watched it and i don't watch this one as much as i do some of the others and you're talking about the producer's cut the producer's cut cuz i'm i have right. the producer's cut on right now Right, and I have the theatrical version. Right, and there's a flashback where Jamie flashes back. She's like laying in the hospital. Um, she's laying in the hospital, and she has a like a comatose flashback to this time that she's been held by the cult. Um, because that's what you see in the beginning is she's like giving birth to the baby, you know, and the and the mm-hmm. cultists are the ones like you know, having her, keeping her and having her give birth because they have this whole weird plan with the, the baby, you know, the baby's going to be the next Michael Myers type shit. <laughs> but there's a flashback when she's comatose of her in the cult being taken into the ritual r- ritual room and she's wearing like kind of a white, simple white dress. Is there a sign on the door that says the ritual room? Well, it's got candles and it's got like the Mark of Thorn no, painted just, everywhere. So just I think wondering. you get the. Has anybody seen Win? <laughs> oh, he's down in the ritual room. <laughs> but it, it's that? Re- uh, you go down the hall, you make a right. 
go go you don't want to don't the laundry room is right there you don't you don't want that the sign fell off like a year ago and we just haven't put it back up it's the next michael left. michael michael myers room is just past that you don't want to go in there <laughs> so make sure you make a right not a left <laughs> but uh so she's on the the like the stone altar thing that they have which is weird that they have this stone stuff like in this weird complex that they have and uh she's got like a little crown of you know garland on her head very ritualistic and she's tied down to the slab and then there's a shot you see michael walking up towards the slab and they're all you know all the cult shit (laughs) and she and and uh uh, the girl, I think it's J.C. Brand, Brandy, um, she, who plays older Jamie in this, she has these two small lines that she says as she's laying there and Michael's walking up. She says, Michael, please don't hurt me. And then she says, God, forgive me. And I'm watching it and I'm thinking to myself, is the baby Michael and Jamie's? Did they like have Michael impregnate Jamie on the altar? And at the end of the producer's cut, when they have Kara strapped to the same altar because she's gonna, they're gonna kill her. She's gonna be like the sacrifice. Mm-hmm. She, in an effort to try and stall the whole proceedings says to Michael, the baby's yours, isn't it? And I'm like, holy fuck. <laughs> they like they worked in ritual incest into this story. Does Michael know how to do it? <laughs> well, he's being controlled by, by Dr. Wynn. Dr. Wynn, I'm sure, knows how to do it. <laughs> Do you have to show Michael a video? Like, do you have to... It's like a very, it's a very it's official video. Babes with big butts six or something, you know. No, no I imagine him sitting Michael down yeah. in a room and it's like literally like one of the sex ed videos. Oh, God. <laughs> with diagrams. Yeah. yeah. And Michael's just doing the head, the head cock. Like... Oh, God. <laughs> Taking notes, though. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like the scribbles mm. of like an eight-year-old <laughs> right <laughs> right but yeah yeah there and basically it was like i'm watching it and i said to jenny i'm like did michael like do it with jamie on the ritual altar and then she got pregnant with the baby i'm like is that what i'm seeing and where am i reading into this and then it got towards the end and kara says that line i'm like oh no that's what they meant <laughs> wow that's what they so so I mean I think it's pretty obvious that's not in the theatrical cut but at least the the confirmation of it but I can't remember if the flashback is in there but that that was the original No I don't think the flashback is in the theatrical cut. Yeah I, I wouldn't imagine. It it's not in the, no. But that was in the original intended story was that the oh, baby boy. Steven is supposed to be the product of Michael Myers and Jamie Lloyd. As part of this thorn ritual. 
He just uh, pokes it through the jumpsuit, or. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm just going to pull out my penis. But yeah, it's it's really really crazy. These are these are the questions we usually have. Like we had the question about the shower. You know, does he take the jumpsuit <laughs> off or does he? Just, uh, <laughs> it's got to get really hot and steamy in the mask. So, <laughs> but I will say, um, you know, the weird stuff. But like we were saying, it does get a lot right. The way Michael stalks people in this is like it's back to the beginning like it's he's lurking outside of windows he's you know um it's like he's he's there and then he's not and then he's there again there's a lot of good stuff with that they blow it in the opening in the opening he just walks up and he just impales that that nurse but for the rest yeah. of the movie, there's some good... Like, when Mrs. Blankenship is telling her history of Halloween, the lightning flashes outside, and Michael is outside the window, like, a, some dis- a little distance away, but the lightning lights him up for just that moment. And then when it flashes again, he's gone. You know, yeah. little touches like that that really work. Also, it's got a great... Uh, this one has a great shot where Kara just leaps out of the window to escape the cultists. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is a good decision. Right. She's smart. Yeah. Yeah. She's very smart. Yeah. Like literally there, she's got nowhere to go. They're coming in the door to get her and she just, just full blown blasts through that, that window. Which is right. always the best. That, that was one of the parts that we loved in like uh, the movie You're Next where the girl mm. just fucking dives out of the house. She's like, no way out, window. <laughs> it's a great movie. <laughs> yeah, your next is awesome. I don't know, Brad. What, you got any other thoughts? Oh, I, I have some some thoughts. Um, to go back to the beginning, they once again, you know, they have to do last time on Halloween. So in order to do that for exposition, they had Paul Rudd just, you know, read off you know the resume um but it was it was more he was recalling four and five yeah um but um but he still you know he still did like a a last time on halloween which was unnecessary i thought um but they did it anyway um i thought the kills were pretty good in the movie um, I thought that despite that there not being any reason for the spike to be there, that you know the kill was still fun. Um, the death of John Strode is a good one. He kind of kills him like he killed Bucky, he electrocutes him. Um, but the whole sequence of John going down into the basement, uh, drunk, um, and then you have the lightning flashing in the background again. So they, you know, they kind of. We're talking about the feel of the movie and stuff like that, you know. Uh, but uh, him going down there and discovering the blood in the washer and everything, and then Michael just being right behind him um, and then grabbing him, it was it was a very cool scene. So the, I thought the kills were pretty cool. The the scene where 
I talked about it before where Kara witnesses the death of the brother's girlfriend. Yeah. Yeah. So she's on the phone, she's on the phone with her and she's very rear window, very rear window esque. Right. You need to, you need to get out of the house. You know, he's, there's someone, Oh my God, there's someone in the room. He's right behind you. And then they do it in this like kind of slow motion, right? Like the, the shot, the way they shot it was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they repeat the stabbing like, uh, you know, in, in slow motion. Um, I thought that was cool. But then the problem was that immediately after they ruined that whole, you know, so she, I talked about it before. She witnesses the, the, the girl dying and then Danny is walking over to the house. So she has to go into the house and she goes through the whole thing in the house. And then she finally makes it back over to Paul Rudd's house. And then that's when you get um, because Loomis is there with Paul Rudd and they run down to the front door and let Kara in. And then that's when, you know, you win appears. Yeah. He reveals himself to be the man. And now it's, it's the end. Yeah. And it's just, it It all unravels from there. It just unravels. It all unravels from there. You never, you never get an explanation as to why the man in black wears spurs. Nope. What's nope. the purpose of that? <laughs> no. Nope. Um, so, but but uh, going back, the the, the kills were were decent. Um, I really like the so- one where he kills Deborah Strode because uh, there's a lot of homages in this to the previous mm. films. So she's like fumbling her way through the laundry. The laundry is hanging out on the line, and that's a throwback to Laurie seeing him in the laundry hanging up in the yard in the first one and she comes through, she like moves a, a sheet or blanket out of her way and he's there. And she's right. like that one second of like, Oh no. And Uh-oh. then he just, yeah. the way George Wilbur swings that ax, he yeah. looks like he chopped her head clean off. Right. You find right. out later he didn't, that he just like buried right. it in her chest. But I mean, right. you're left to a mat cause all you see is the blood hit the sheets and so yep. you're left to imagine what the fuck did he do to Deborah? Poor Deborah Strode, right. poor downtrodden Deborah Strode, who's just trying to do right by her kids, trying to keep her husband happy while his world's falling apart, with no thought yep. to herself. She's left to paint the house and do the laundry and <laughs> do all the stuff, and again, she gets an axe to the chest. <laughs> And, and, and that's, but is that part of why it's effective? Because we talked about it before in five, you are, at least if you don't like the characters, you're sympathetic towards them. Yeah. And that's you're the sympathetic thing. towards Carrie. You're sympathetic towards the mom because of the abuse that they, you know, they go through. And she's like the, I think she's like the fourth kill of the film because he kills the nurse. He kills the, the guy who, uh, Jamie steals the guy's truck or she's about to and she tries to like warn him to like huh yeah what and, and so Michael snaps his neck and then of course he kills Jamie or well stabs her and then she you know dies yeah. later but uh Deborah Strode is like the fourth kill of the film but she feels like the first because right. 
she's the first one that you really you get some characterization you get some background on her and Mm -hmm. she's just a nice sweet caring mom and then michael just fucking brutally axes her to death and yeah it's it's more much more effective much more effective than spitz and mike and uh, Samantha in five, much more effective than anything he did to Tina. You know, uh, that that kill hits because you're like, damn, damn. Right. Poor Deborah right. Strode, you know? Right. So you have the characters that you like, you have them dying, but even when he kills the um, the radio DJ. So two things with that. One thing is... Um, I noticed that so the way he kills the radio DJ is the radio DJ gets into the van because they're going to go to the house and um, Michael comes up behind him and, and stabs him, but he stabs him right away. Yeah. Right. He just comes up behind him and stabs him. Lesson learned from right. the first Halloween. Right. He right. said with Annie, he's Aunt- trying to choke her. It's not working out. He's she's not- fighting. She's kicking back. And then he finally figures out to slash her throat. He's not messing around this time. He's going right to just stabbing the dude and end it, right? <laughs> so that's that's the first thing. And then the second thing was the way that Michael set up um, the the body. He oh, yeah. had him up in the tree, and then he had the little girl. That is under, a and great. Then the little girl underneath going. Why is it raining? It's red. raining red. Yeah, it's raining well, red, she's mommy. She's going. It's raining red. Yeah, she's it's singing a little red. song to herself. But it's a little creepy. It's a little like shining, like the twins from Shining get this like little creepy. Right. And then she asked she asked Tommy red, Doyle, Tommy. why is it warm? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. That so, that sequence yeah. is is really like just having that little girl in the li- and she's wearing a little princess outfit. Just like Jamie Lloyd did in the second, or the, well, I say the second film, the second film of this trilogy in five, she's wearing, Jamie Lloyd wears a princess outfit for Halloween. The little girl's wearing a pink princess outfit. She's getting drip, the blood's dripping on her. It's so fucking creepy the way she's reacting. Like she has no concept. She doesn't get it. But the other thing too is, and I, I might be reading too much into this is why are they all there they're all there this you know um kara's brother's girlfriend set this whole thing up to where uh they're going to take back halloween right so the town is trying to heal itself or she's trying to get the town to heal and say michael myers is gone he's dead he's buried we have to move on this whole town is dead because of this guy. We have to, we have to, we have to pick ourselves back up again. And so I think Michael kills him and sets him up like that as specifically an to the town as an answer, as an fu to the t- yeah. Oh yeah, I'm dead. Am I? Well, they do and, make and the because he he attacks at that at that rally. He, right. he makes an attack at the rally. So. And they do make that point in the film that that guy's. Uh, radio show is like the most you hear the rate the show playing like everywhere because tommy doyle has it on even dr loomis listens to it 
you know, right. um, it's playing at the train station where Jamie tries to hide from, or the bus station where Jamie tries to hide from Michael. Um, right. it, that radio show is everywhere. So you get the feeling. Well, that, it's a Chicago based, right? Right. It's supposed yeah. to be a Chicago radio station. And you yeah. get, so you get the, the idea that Michael has, is hearing this. He's hearing, mm-hmm. he's got to be hearing it. It's the fucking shows everywhere. Right. right. So he's definitely at the, he, when he's at the bus station, he's hearing it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it's very possible that that was his response, you know, was yeah. to, to do that, especially because of how the guy was talking about Michael Myers and the whole the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, but I, I mean, he just could have he just could have killed a DJ in the van. Yeah. And left it at that. But he set him up so that he'd be seen. Eventually be he seen. would be he would fall and he would be seen by everybody and panic the whole town. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's all kinds of sequences that that there there's there's a lot of depth to them, and there's a lot of mysteries, purposeful mysteries that are left open ended that you know are are interesting to think about. Um, it's it's just it, it's unfortunately taking Michael Myers to the supernatural just doesn't work. Because mm-hmm. through so many of the films, you established that he was just a guy. I get it. You're six movies in. It it starts to feel ridiculous that he could survive all this stuff. But like mm-hmm. we've talked about, not just on this show, but all through our lives talking about these movies, that is part of the magic of Michael Myers is that there is no magic. He's mm-hmm. just a crazy son of a bitch who mm-hmm. doesn't give a fuck. You stab him, you shoot him, you do, you electrocute him, you hang him. He doesn't fucking care. He's still coming. Mm-hmm. He's still coming. If he has to wait a year, if he has to wait two years, if he has to wait six years, he's gonna get you. He's coming. Mm-hmm. And that's what Loomis, Loomis all through the series... Uh, you know, through from one to six is trying to tell everybody Michael Myers is here. He's coming. Am I get ready? You know, he's like he's he's like to not to take it to too too serious a thing, but he's like um, he he's like uh, uh, you know John John the Baptist. You know the in the wild, like trying to like proclaim the coming. You know he he's coming. Get ready. You know. Mm-hmm. And no one listens. No one wants to hear the message, you know. They all want to forget it. They all want to act like, Mike. no, Michael Myers is locked up. Or no, Michael Myers is dead. Or, you know, mm-hmm. all this stuff. And then Michael Myers shows up. I fucking told you. You know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. You know. And, uh, and, and that's part of the magic. That there is no magic. He's just so deeply... Uh, fractured he has, he has such a deeply fractured psyche that he just keeps coming and coming and coming and coming and mm-hmm. you know and i i will say that's that's um one of the the things that uh you know the the david gordon green trilogy had high moments it had issues just like mm-hmm. any of these films yeah. but i kind of like the fact that they're like fucking grind them up you know, we're done with this shit. 
we're we're done with it. We don't want him, you know, to come back, you know. And and you kind of have to. It's gonna, the David Gordon Green stuff is, I'm sure, going to end up being treated just like all of the other choose your own adventure versions of the Halloween narrative. That's mm-hmm. going to be one version of the narrative for some people, and they're going to yep. gravitate to it and they're going to love it and. Just like we love the Thorn trilogy, even though we hate the Mark of Thorn storyline, <laughs> we love the Thorn trilogy. <laughs> right. You know. Sure. And um, but yeah, you know, it, it when you have Jason, you know, Jason basically is a zombie juggernaut. You have uh, Freddy, Fred. You know, the the big three. Jason, Freddy is a nightmare demon. Hmm. Uh. You know, when you have all that stuff going on, it actually works to have he's just Michael Myers and he's just that crazy. Right. And he's just that full of rage. Right. um, That he's willing to just take it out on the world. Mm -hmm. And you can't and he just won't he he won't let himself be stopped. Right. You know, that works. And unfortunately, when they got to, they started dabbling in it in five because it really wasn't in four. There really wasn't any of this stuff in four. Nope. It may have been a, like an intention to slowly roll it out, but they kept four pretty pristine. Uh, and then they started dabbling in it in five, and then they got deep, deep in it in six. And when you take Michael Myers and you make him supernatural, it actually loses the magic, you know? Right. That's the, yep. that's the way I always felt about it. Right. And people like, you know, my own son, Jack, 14 years old. He's like, why do you watch these movies? It's just the same thing. Every time he comes back on Halloween, he stabs a bunch of people and then they think he's dead or he's in jail and then he comes back next Halloween, he stabs a bunch of people, you know? And uh, and he says, that's that's why I love three. That's why I love three, because at least it's different. At least they tried something new. <laughs> I love your impression of your son. <laughs> He's like an 80-year-old man. And, uh, and, why do you even bother? But that that's, and I tell him, I say, but that's the part you don't understand that you're like, okay, yeah, the MO is very similar. I mean, he's a serial killer. Yeah, the MO is going to be very similar every time. But when there's way, like in four, part of six, in 78, when, when you craft the story well to where it's not, that's the thing. The reason Jack doesn't understand why I love these is because he doesn't understand that it's not about the kills. It's not about Mm -hmm. Michael Myers, even necessarily. It's Mm -hmm. the fact that you've taken Michael Myers, who is already such a strong character with a very clear motivation. And you, when you drop him into situations with other characters who are experiencing other things going on in their lives, things that make you gravitate towards them, things that make you care about them, things that make you like them. And then all of a sudden, this stabby, stabby bomb is dropped in the middle of that life. 
mm-hmm. and how do they deal with it? Right. How do they get out of it? And then it's like, you know, seasoning on the top when, you know, he puts somebody's head on a spike and hangs them up on the wall with a knife or a shotgun. That's the seasoning on top of that. It's it's, it's also it's also the boogeyman concept though oh yeah too, from, well, at least for for me because the lore the, the lore the legend the lore the the but this is what we grew up on this isn't what jack grew up on so yeah. we grew up with boogeymen and that's what gave us nightmares as a kid the we when i had nightmares as a kid i had nightmares that you know, about Freddy. I had nightmares about Jason. I had nightmares about Michael. They were the boogeymen, right? They were the people that were going to jump out from the bushes and, and, and get you. So that's, that's just what we, I just think what we grew up with. And I think it's just different for Jack. So it's different for Jack's generation about what he defines as horror, because that's not really what is popular now in horror. It's more, um the ghost stories you know it's more the insidious and the um conjuring um, conjuring conjuring and and right all that stuff it's all about the possession and ghosts and stuff like that that's that's what he's growing up with so yeah you know all the all the fake shit that doesn't really happen (laughs) right (laughs) that i I I have another podcast where I talk all about stuff like that, so I don't believe that statement. But, <laughs> but I mean, you know, for I know for me, I know for Jenny, even though Jenny's not into slashers as much as uh, I am, um, mm. for for both of us, uh, it's more compelling. Like when something can really happen, like the idea. It's more. It's much more compelling. When a dream demon can come to you in your sleep and kill you. <laughs> well, I'm talking about Michael Myers specifically. Oh, right, Michael Myers. The the idea that you know one day some some Looney Tune puts on a mask. You know, they get fixated mm-hmm. on some mask at the Halloween store, and they right. put it on, and they decide to go around killing a bunch of you know teenagers. What happened a couple of years ago? Remember the uh, the great clown scare of a couple of years ago? Uh, what was that? Right. 20, I don't know, 2016. You had people dressing up in uh, clown masks and hurting people. I think, um, it, I think wasn't it even a little later than that? I, I feel like it was like 2018, 2019 almost, but maybe I'm I was wrong. still living in New Jersey um, at the time. So it had to be before 20. But yeah, nineteen anyway, and and just think about you know um, we talk about the big three and Freddie, uh, Jason and Michael, but Leatherface, right? Based on Ed Gein, it, you know the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was based on what they found, what the police found when they walked into Ed Gein's house. Oh yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know there there bones, you know, in pots on the stove. There was furniture made out of bones and 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 skin, and um, that really happened. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That that's all real. That's all that stuff is real. Jack the Ripper was a real guy. Jeffrey you know Dahmer. I mean? like, Jeffrey, Jeffrey Dahmer, Dahmer was melting yeah. dudes. Yeah. In a barrel in his apartment. Right. Okay. Right. That the the real shit 
is actually twice as fucking horrific as anything Michael Myers has ever done. You know? So, so I'm willing to say like the fact that I love Michael Myers movie, you know, the Halloween movies so much, like, yeah, I I actually kind of like some weak ass shit. (laughs) But did Jeffrey Dahmer ever impale anybody on the wall with a shotgun? (laughs) True. True. Dahmer, Dahmer didn't do the, uh, the, uh, the arm work. He didn't, he didn't work the triceps enough to to be able to pull off that. That's right. He wasn't able to stick a thumb through somebody's skull. He just, <laughs> but he just wasn't able to do it. But yeah, I mean, you know, that it's uh I can't I can't truly express exactly why I love this particular, you know, I love Halloween the franchise o- overall, but why I particularly mm-hmm. like you can say, yeah, it's, you know, because of when they came out, the age, you know, it's, you're influ you know, you, you're easily influenced by the stuff you see. But, um, but it's sort of like, there's just something about, especially this storyline, I think it grabs you just from four when it's about a little girl and mm-hmm. he's after a little girl. They're able to carry it through five, even though five is, uh, you know, uh, probably the weakest of of the three. Even though six has so many problems, six at least has compelling characters. You know, they have compelling characters, and you again, it's important. It's important that Michael looked good. It's important that George Wilbur came back and and portrayed Michael. It's important they get the mask right. Mm-hmm. Um, it was important that they. Um, made it feel like Halloween. They shot this in the fall, so you actually get um, the leaves falling from the trees in the beginning. So, you know, they make Michael brutal in this movie. The whole scene um, towards the end where he goes in and he murders all the doctors. um, Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, he's he's pretty brutal in in this movie. And um, so I think if you... You know, you got to take um, some of the, again, there's too much bad uh, from this movie, but it's kind of like what I say with Rob Zombie's uh, Halloween movies. You got to, sometimes you got to take some of the sm- the other stuff out of it. And if you just concentrate on some of the things that really worked about the movie, it ends up being, you know, really watchable. So again, we, we say that this movie is towards the bottom it was kind of a wreck because of the Mark of Thorn thing, but um, but we watch it all the time. Um, it still feels like a Halloween movie, and it's still uh, better than Resurrection. <laughs> it's better than Resurrection. You had again, you have some very tense scenes. Uh, the whole scene when she goes back to the to the Myers house. Um, Paul Rudd is good. Um, it's sad, but you do get your last um, performance from from Donald Pleasance. Yeah. So there's, there, there's, there's a lot in this movie, um, that, that makes you want to watch it. Um, but it, it, it is, uh, um, it, it's, it, it is not a good movie. Um, <laughs> it, I can't say it's a good movie, but it's certainly a watchable movie. It's certainly a watchable movie in the franchise. It's not the worst one. It's nowhere near Resurrections, nowhere near five. 
Um, I, to be perfectly honest with you, Kyle, I watched this over Halloween too. And I know that's crazy to say maybe because of John Carpenter's involvement in that one. Um, but I, I watched this more. Um, well, yeah, I mean, Halloween two, uh, to compare, to compare some of them, you know, Halloween two, unfortunately there's only, even though, um, you know, we get a, a good performance from, uh, I can never remember his name. I just always call him the last Starfighter. <laughs> but we get a good performance. And, and you have Jamie Lee Curtis uh, as Laurie coming back. Unfortunately, uh, you just don't care as much about the nurses. You don't, you know, it, it lacks that extra touch. Right. Right. That that. Falls. So I mean, how often? Yeah, how often do you watch two? Two. Do you watch this? Do you watch this one more than you watch two, though? Right. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Okay. Yep. So as a because we're wrapping up um, the Mark of Thorn trilogy, this is it's the second best one. Yeah, yeah. Out of out of four, five, and six, you'd have to. I would have to rank them four, six, and then five. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's and uh, either an either version, producer yeah, yeah, either or, either yeah, either version, version, either version. I don't know. Do do we want to do uh, another episode just on the Mark of Thorn as a whole and and what we are think you asking that? my honest opinion? What's your, what's your honest opinion? I don't think we need to. Um, it's not true. Anybody that thinks that no, that's a real it, fucking thing? No, it's that's not, not what thing. that rune means. That rune actually, like, if anything, on its own, picked it up. It that that rune represents like the god Thor, you know, because yeah. it's like literally like uh, it's called Thurisaz. You know, we get Thursday from Thor. That was like mm-hmm. the rune that symbolized him. It has nothing yep. to do with fucking curses, family tree curses, or any of this shit. And they just made it all up. They made it all up, and for some reason, they somehow tied Viking shit to Celtic shit because Samhain, or Samhain, if you want to be pretentious, you know, and and, yeah, Samhain, um, Samhain is Celtic. It's not Viking. The Celts didn't use runes. They used fucking little lines, (laughs) you know, like they, you know, they literally took just two ancient cultures mixed them together and then made something up. <laughs> right. And that's the entire mark of thorn. Um and it became it becomes yeah, it's just so funny that it becomes the main plot point of this trilogy and we hate it. Yeah. But it's our favorite trilogy. <laughs> so all right. So the next episode we will do our top 20 I have comparison episode we're going to compare a top 20 and we talked about we're going to do five honorable mentions stuff i did 10 you did (laughs) jeez (laughs) cut it down to five (laughs) Uh. well all right well that's our that's our episode on halloween six the curse of michael myers and god love him for making it and fuck him for screwing up so much of it if only they could have gotten their shit together and taken taken their time and made a good movie. 
Decisions, Kyle. Decisions. <laughs> decisions and consequences. <laughs> yeah, decisions and consequences. That's right. Oh, and and can I just ask? I know we're wrapping up, um, but so when Paul Rudd beats him with the pipe um, at the end and and I don't know, kills him or doesn't kill him because he kills Loomis or whatever, he doesn't bleed. I mean, he bleeds. But he bleeds like Predator Green. <laughs> He's not even real. He's it, like this genetic. It um, could even come down to something as simple baby. as the special effects person just put too much uh, green food coloring in because that's that is um, Tom Savini. His whole thing is you have to put a little green into the the blood. Because if it's like against a white shirt or a white surface, if you don't put a little green in it, which helps to, to darken it, it does something, you know, to the the color aspect, you know, the, what you can read in your eye, it'll yeah. it'll come out pink against white. So you got to add right. a little green to it to give it that dark, dark blood color, that fresh right. blood color. And um, it's possible that they just put too much in. It's only green, though. <laughs> hey, Jerry, did you put the red in? Oh, shit. Ah, I, thought, fuck it. I thought you did the red. I did the green. <laughs> right. <laughs> you didn't do the red? You didn't do the red yet? <laughs> and they didn't figure, yeah, they didn't figure it out in post-production. Or they, I, put, they just... I put all the green in. <laughs> Right. You said just put the green in. I thought you put the red in too. You didn't say the red. The red's back in the truck. I got tons of red. You want red, I got tons of red, but the red's in the truck because you didn't say bring the red and you said bring the green in. You son of a bitch. You son of a bitch. Yeah, I, right. You've been trying to get me fired since Halloween 4. <laughs> all right well so from me and me that's our show that's halloween six remember the broadcast is coming from inside the house thank you and good night